Please join me in prayer. Lord, keep us from presumptuous thoughts of our own importance and give us a deeper understanding of what it meant for you to come to earth and set aside your glory and to model God's servant love for us even as we hear your word spoken and preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A reading from the book of Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 12, the Gospel of the Lord. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Men, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. The Phoenician slave was barely a teenager as his master's blows landed on his face and on his side, one after another, the ivory club bludgeoning his body. Other slaves went about their duties without acknowledging the ordeal. It was early evening in Roman Caesarea, the chief port city of Roman Palestine. The master's impatience with the boy's productivity had finally boiled over. The victim had been purchased just the previous year, having a name but not legally a person. And after so savage a beating, the boy's limp body lay on the tile floor. It would not be clear whether he would live or die, but he would live to repeat the experience another day, another day laboring for another man's benefit. This was the empire of the Romans, and this was business. At the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, slaves made up between 10 and 15 percent of the population of Rome in the first century. Slaves were considered property under Roman law and were not legal persons. Unlike citizens, they could be subjected to corporal punishment, sexual exploitation, torture, execution. Uh, the philosopher Musonius Rufus said, every master has full authority to use his slave as he might see fit. The father of Imperial physician Galen once advised his friends not to ever punch their servants in the mouth, not because it might cause pain or humiliation to the servant, but because of the risk posed to the owner of cutting one's knuckles on the servant's teeth. 
As most slaves in the Roman world could easily blend into the population, if they escaped, they would typically uh, be tattooed over their forehead saying, stop me, I am a runaway. Or if they were owned by the state, tax paid. Even among those who were not slaves, 90% of people in the empire lived close to the subsistence level or below it. There was no Roman middle class. Heavy taxes to fund tribute and wars and building projects kept the countryside particularly impoverished. And in the cities, day laborers would migrate to projects in suburban districts as work became available. There was no certain guarantee after a hard day's work that you would actually be paid your wages at the close of the day because the wealthy would be protected by their wealth and their social status and their family honor from any accusation of having failed to pay. And then there were the kids. Children worked as soon as they were physically capable, whether they were free or slaves. Skeletons of the very young have been discovered in excavations with clear signs of the bones and joints of of hard physical labor. One particular cemetery just outside of Rome, near an ancient laundry and textile work, contains the remains of young people who had obviously had years of heavy work behind them, showing the effects of stamping and treading needed in, in the treatment of cloth. Children are even commemorated as workers in their epitaphs. There's a tombstone uh, in, in Roman Spain of a four-year-old child. And on the, on the tombstone, the child is shown carrying his mining tools. He had died in a mining accident at the age of four. You think this could never happen today. Friends, I have a grandfather in Appalachia, or had. He was born in 1910. In 1916, at the age of six, he dropped out of first grade because they needed small children to work in the mines to shimmy down tight little crevices in order to plant the dynamite. He had, by the time I knew him, he, had, he was missing both of his thumbs, parts of other fingers. He had a lo- sheet of steel lodged in one of his lungs, and he had black lung. Um, that's in the 20th century. That's in living memory. And yet in Rome, the business and landowners literally would work their laborers to death. Those who might accumulate wealth did so at the expense of the poor and of their slaves. Building wealth could be a cruel business in the first century. So the question is then, when the gospel started breaking in to this world system in the first century, what did it have to say? How does the message of Jesus change how this works within the family of God? Does the gospel offer a better vision of of wealth and work and justice? What difference does Jesus make or does he make a difference? And you could be an architect or an engineer or a clerk or a social worker or a custodian. You might be a CEO or an entrepreneur or an artist or a stay-at-home parent or a barber or an academic. Uh, Whether you stay at home or travel for a living, whatever you do in life, How does this gospel of Jesus inform, enlighten, transform what you do throughout your work week? We're going to read James, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. This is from the brother of Jesus who grew up disbelieving and came to faith that his own brother, older brother, was the son of God. And he was a leader in the church. And he writes these words into this context of this Roman system of the wealthy crippling the poor to get every last denarii out of them. This is 4.13. Now listen, you who say today 
or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast and you brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This is God's word. It's a heavy word. What's it say? What do we see here? First of all, we see this incredibly countercultural vision to bend our career paths not toward our benefit, but toward the benefit of the poor. Because work is about more than making money. Uh, you know, these, these, these opponents that James is singling out, you know, they're not representing God with their work. They're not bending it toward the needs of the poor or toward the caring for their workers and employees. He says, you know, they say, oh, tomorrow we're going to make a whole lot of money because uh, that was at the expense of others and that was their focus. He says in verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence and fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. I mean, what on earth is God saying here? What he's saying, if you construe it positively in his condemnation, is that what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to go about your business in a way that opens doors for those who are marginalized, in a way that opens doors for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for those who who have physical needs of their own to take care of. Think back to the Old Testament, the, the Mosaic Law. Think about Deuteronomy and all of that legislation that we looked at, you know, last year, whenever it was, in, in, in Deuteronomy 24, where, you know, if you're a farmer, the law of God says when you, when you harvest your fields, don't harvest all the way out to the edges. Just harvest the center of the field and leave the edges for whom? For the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the person who doesn't have a means to feed themselves so that they can go and harvest the edges that are harder to do anyway. You're talking about the bit that goes down into the ruts of the valleys. Uh, he says, if, you're, if you run an olive orchard, he says, don't go and pick every single olive. Just pick the ripe ones. But don't go over your field a second time. Because those ones that aren't yet ripe, in a couple weeks they're going to be ripe. And you need to leave those for the poor, for the alien, for the stranger, for the migrant, for the person who cannot take care of themselves. When you're doing your business, do it in a way that bends it toward the benefit of the poor. In Deuteronomy, if you run a winery, don't harvest every single grape, God says. Harvest the ones that are ripe and leave the unripe ones to ripen for those who can come along and glean what's remaining afterwards. In other words, when you do your business, do it in a way that bends your career path to the benefit 
of the poor. Whatever your career is, James is calling out to the rich of his day, calling them out for using their career paths only to benefit themselves and not to benefit their employees and others who have needs. It's that biblical theme of solidarity. It is always uh, in the, it's, it's almost the backbone of the Bible that we are not radical, rugged individualists. We are the people that God has created and we are our brother's keeper and we are responsible. And the Bible never calls giving care to the poor charity because that would imply that it's optional. The Bible calls it justice because we owe it to the poor to look out for them, to open doors for them. It's not about giving a hand out. It's about giving a hand up so that we can actually empower them to live out the calling God has for them. What's this look like? In practice, um, I'm aware of one Christian in higher education who noticed how how universities today milk adjunct and and graduate level uh, positions in order to get as much teaching for as little money as possible. And very often when you've got a PhD, that doesn't mean you're living a high life. That means you're working... Uh, you know, five different classes in three different schools. And as a result, and they don't pay well either, but as a result, if you're part-time at WashU teaching and you're part-time teaching at SLU and you're part-time teaching at Fontbon, then what is the one thing that you do not have under any circumstances? Benefits. And so this one Christian actually noticed this pattern and, and actually rearranged some things such that the adjunct fa- faculty that were there, they would be grouped so that they would have three or four classes at that school. It'd be fewer of them, but they'd all have full-time status and therefore full-time benefits. Uh, you know, we're talking health care for their families. Uh, it was a way of weighing into an unjust structural system as a Christian with some influence to try to make a more just social order, you know, doing their career in a way that is bent to benefit those who are being disadvantaged. I know of one auto dealer, I think it's down in North Carolina, Dom Flo, who, who he, uh, you know, ran his auto, auto dealerships like everyone runs them, uh, pretty much. And, uh, and yet that means every sale, of course, you're trying to get the highest price possible. You haggle. And that means that people who are really good at haggling and feel really strong and empowered consistently pay less for their vehicles. And those who are less empowered to haggle and argue for a price pay more for their vehicles. And he noticed consistently that the people in his dealerships who consistently paid the highest price for their vehicles were whom? Racial and ethnic minorities and women. And he said, this is wrong. And so he said, we're not haggling anymore. He put a flat price, which was the equivalent of what he would have made on average from each vehicle. No haggling, no discounts, no special anything. The price on the window is the real price. Everybody pays the same price. And his business has thrived. Because who's rushing there because they know that they're going to get the best deal? Racial and ethnic minorities and women. He's selling a lot of cars. Um, God's blessing it. But his concern was for justice. Um, Think of the homemaker who sees a trip to the park as an opportunity not to play on their phone, but rather to engage with other parents who might be single parents and might be kind of frazzled and might need some support. Think of the mortgage agent who goes beyond the call of duty, making phone calls and tracking down paperwork to make sure that a poor family gets a good mortgage that they're going to be able to afford long term, not a balloon loan, but a good, reliable fixed rate loan. Uh, Think of the executive in the corporate world who chooses to take the fall to cover the failing of their employee. I mean, we've all seen the opposite. I mean, 
most of us have probably seen an instance in which a supervisor uh, blamed somebody under them for something that was their failure. But what about when it's the opposite? Have you seen that? You can almost picture it. You know, the uh, the employee who really just dropped the ball and lost a key account for his company. And we're talking six figures, really looking bad. And then somebody outside his boss's office overhears his boss explaining to the CEO and president that it was her fault, that she had missed some things and, 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 and made some mistakes, uh, and that she was really sorry for it. And they're like, okay, you're reliable, we love you, okay. And word starts to pass through that office, cubicle to cubicle. Do you know what the boss just did? The boss just took the fall for that guy down in the corner who just lost us a $100,000 a year account. You know, he's sitting there, you know, in his cubicle already looking for a new job because he knows he's just made a career-ending blunder. And, and yet word gets to him of what's happened. And so sheepishly, you know, he makes his way toward her office and she sees him at the door and says, come on in, have, have a seat. Yes, you still have a job here, but I'd like to mentor you in a few key areas where I think you could really do better and you could really make it well in the long term to develop your skill set and, and leadership capacity. And his voice is trembling. I heard you told Mr. Wallace that you were the one to blame. Well, I'm responsible for what happens in my department. But, but boss... <laughs> Why'd you take the blame for me? I lost the account. My failure hurt the company. I've lost the company more than I make in a year. Why would you risk your future in order to protect mine? And she says, close the door. This is a personal question. And I'm going to give you a personal answer, not as your boss, but as your friend. It's because that's what Jesus did for me. And it's changed me. And my job isn't about me climbing the corporate ladder I love my job. I see a lot in you. I'm willing to take a hit in order to help you grow your career. I mean, how beautiful is that? How countercultural is that? How absolutely unlike anything we see in our culture is that? You see, it's this countercultural vision to bend our career paths to the benefit of others. And James brings some pretty heavy theological realities to bear here. I mean, there's some heavy stuff here. He says, you remember your life is like a mist that vanishes. He's saying your life is a vapor, you know, to, you know, I mean, think of what that, that is where, you know, you, you breathe outside on a cold day. And I know that's really hard to imagine right now. But imagine we're on the other end of, of the globe and it's winter. Or imagine it's January in St. Louis and you have not seen that big fiery ball in the sky for six weeks. It's windy outside. It's 12 degrees. The ice is so cold, it's frozen over. It's just insanely awful. And you have to step outside to take out the trash. And that first breath comes out of your moist lungs and it's like, whew, and it's a cumulus cloud. And then it's gone. And James is saying that's our life. It's this brief thing. It's this brief momentary, you know, in an, in an eternity of hundreds of trillions of billions of infinite light years of, of years and years and years. We're just a moment, a vapor, a mist that disappears. Today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to this city and make a lot of money. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears and then vanishes. You know, Jesus 
warned about this. He talked about what, what Rena read, the, the rich guy who has all this money, all this stuff, and he says, self, I'm going to build bigger barns, and then we're going to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool, this night your life will be demanded of you. It's some heavy theological realities. He's, he's bringing down the knowledge of God as a judge who is sovereign. You know, God is the one who hears the cries of the harvesters in verse 4. They have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty because God sees everything. He is there. We are always and only in the presence of Him. We cannot hide from Him. And He's, he's sovereign. He's the author of the narrative. He's, he's written the script in advance in verse 15. You, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, I'll do this and that. Because we're always in this narrative that, that was written by God. And yes, God enters into the story as a part of the story, but he's also sovereign over the story, having written the story of our lives in advance. If it is God's will, we will do this. Uh, imagine you're in a, a shop in the Grand Bazaar of Damascus in Syria. And you see this a little shop, this intricate, beautiful oil lamp, but it's not quite the finish that you want. And you're holding it there, and the, the owner is trying to sell it to you, and you're explaining to him that it's not exactly what you want, and you explain what you want, because I haven't, obviously you're fluent in, in, in Arabic, and uh, some of you are. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, and uh, he says, come back tomorrow. I know people. I have connections. I'll get you the one you want, inshallah. What's inshallah? If God wills it. Later that summer, you're in a small antiques shop in, in the Jewish quarter of old Jerusalem and you see another small oil lamp because the other guy, you went back the next day and it wasn't inshallah, so he didn't have it. And so again, you're explaining your dilemma and, and you're right there in the Jewish quarter and the shopkeeper promises, come back tomorrow. I have connections. I know people. Uh, I'll have it for you tomorrow in Yirtzeh Hashem. In Yirtzeh Hashem. If God wills it because he's sovereign. He may not. Later that fall, you're sorting through old letters, love letters in your great-grandmother's attic, trying to make out the beautiful cursive ink handwriting perfectly formed on once fine but now faded embossed stationery. You lift a letter up to your nose and you can still smell the rose water wafting from it. And there at the end of her love letter, made out in capital letters, a D and a V. What does that mean? Deo volenti. If God wills it. And then, the following spring, you're on your way to visit some of my distant relatives up in the hills of eastern Kentucky. You've just crossed the border from southwestern Virginia into eastern Kentucky. The highway has just turned from gravel to rutted, raw, wet mud. You get a phone call giving you directions so you can find which holler it's in. And an elderly voice, incredibly old, on the other side lets you know that, 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 that up ahead, that sheer bridge is a bit side-goggling from the rains, but we reckon y'all gonna come on over and sit a spell, and we have, you know, poke chips and, and some dope. That's Coca-Cola. Uh, but we see y'all directly. Lord willing, if the creek don't rise. I'm just two generations removed. I still understand Appalachian dialect American English. Lord willing, 
And if the creek does not rise, it's embedded in Western civilization. We've secularized it away. But the rest of the world still understands that you can't make any plans if God has decreed otherwise. We are living in a story that our Creator has written beforehand. Yes, He's in the story, but He's sovereign over it, having written our meaningful script of redemption in advance. And James is reminding us of the sovereignty of God so that we might hold our careers lightly, not to milk it for all it's worth, but to take risks and sacrifice, to bend our career trajectory to the benefit of the poor. Remember, Jesus said a bird can't fall to the ground. Probably means a bird can't die without the will of my Father in heaven. That's a lot of will. That's a lot of decisions that God has made in advance. He says the hairs of your head are numbered. The posture of dependence on God, he's sovereign. It's his story. So we can hold it lightly because he's going to take care of us because he is in charge. He is sovereign. And as a sovereign judge, we see also here more theological resources as we see something of the fierceness of God. These first three verses of chapter 5, he says, and listen to this. Now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I mean, how does that fly in an American suburb? I mean, such language offends our sensibilities. And yet, God, the God of Jesus, the God of the Bible, the God of James, is the God of judgment, a fierce God who judges He's far less, you know, this this God of judgment is far less offensive if you are numbered among the have-nots of the world. If you're the poor, if you're the victim, if you're the abused, then the thought that God is not going to let it stand is good news. Miroslav Volf, having originally written uh, the paper from which his book Exclusion and Embrace uh, was drawn from, he was asked, he was watching his home country of Yugoslavia torn apart with genocide and murders and wars. And he was asked to theologically reflect upon this experience of violence and genocide that he was seeing in his homeland. He wrote this, he said in Exclusion and Embrace, one could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering and all-powerful love? A counter-question could go something like this, he writes. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? Recalling my arguments about the self-immunization of the evildoers, one could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. Atlan rightly has drawn our attention to the fact that in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, 
but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. What we should bring down the powerful from their, that we should bring down the powerful from their thrones seems responsible. That God should do the same so that revolutionary virgin explicitly states seems crude. And so violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the secular West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where this paper was first delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground. Our daughters and sisters have been raped. Our fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, he writes, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the Western liberal mind. The God of Jesus of Nazareth is a fierce God who opposes evil and injustice, who identifies as the God of the poor, the God of the orphan, the God of the migrant, and the God of the widow. The God, unlike the gods of the nations that always favor and bless the rich and powerful, the God of Jesus is fierce in his goodness, and even he call, as he calls us to risk our careers to bend them to the advantage of the poor. So, how can we take that kind of risk? Friends, it's about having something better in which to boast? You know, what drives our need to succeed? You know, this is where James delves into the psychology of work. What drives our need to succeed is right there in the text. Did you see it? It's right there in verse 16. You boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. It's this need that we have to have something to boast about. That's what drives us to be over-competitive. That's what drives us to cheat and to steal. That's what drives us to use people because we have to have something that we can boast about. Some success, some worldly uh, 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 thing that we can say, look, look at what I have built. See, we all have this inbuilt drive to make a name for ourselves. It's there in our DNA. Before the fall, at the beginning of creation, we were wired, hardwired to be naked and unashamed because we were wired to always receive our sense of approval from outside of ourselves. In God, who was looking upon us, smiling upon us and pleased with us, And friends, when we broke that relationship with God, when humanity severed its connection to God, we didn't suddenly change our psychology. We're still wired to look outside of ourselves for approval. And we look at it from the next closest thing to God, which is his image in man. We want to be successful in the eyes of other people. And that drive, it it, it could be in our workplace, it could be by having a certain kind of family that we can boast about, a certain kind of house we can boast about, a certain kind of car or lifestyle we can boast about, having a certain intellectual prowess or quick wit or, or sense of visual and aesthetic style or panache or je ne sais quoi. You know, we're all driven for something. 
so that we can have something to boast about. And that internal drive, it's going to leave victims. It's going to leave victims because you're going to use people in order to succeed. And that's what James is calling us out. Look at the psychology of it. Look at what's going on inside of you. What if you had something better to boast about? What if you had something that captured your heart? That's where the message of Jesus comes in. Because this is the brother of Jesus saying, friends, Jesus has captured my heart. I have seen his gospel. I have seen a God who dies for his enemies instead of judging them. I've seen a God who is filled with love and compassion, who covers over all of my shame, who forgives all of my sins. Friends, that is something far better than having a successful career from which you eventually will have to retire. That's something beautiful, friends. When the gospel comes crashing into your life, we've we've read it before in the gospels, when Jesus talks about when the kingdom of God captures your heart, when when the light bulb goes off and you see its beauty, it's it's like a buried treasure that's buried in a field, and so you sell everything you have in order to buy that field because you've got to have that treasure. Friends, Jesus is that treasure. He is more precious. And when Jesus comes crashing into your life, It changes everything. When your heart's captivated by his beauty, when you find yourself mesmerized by the spectacle of of God in the person of Jesus, when you fall in love with Jesus, your priorities shift because then the thing that you want to boast in is not your house or your car or your career or your marriage or your success or your kids or your family life or, or, or your incredible sense of savvy style and sophistication. Those are good gifts of God. They're callings from God. But when the gospel captures your heart, when the gospel captivates your soul, the thing you're going to find yourself boasting about is Jesus and the great and powerful salvation that he has brought to pass through his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, current reign and intercession on your behalf and his promise to come again to make everything right. That is something worth living for and worth dying for and worth sacrificing for and risking your career for because that's the very purpose and meaning and hope of our life on this planet. The gospel is all we have. And when you get the gospel, everything else becomes secondary. It's something better to boast about than worldly success. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, the stars are always out. You only see them after the sun sets. Because once the sun rises, the stars are still out, but you know what? You don't see them because there is a star that is a lot bigger and a lot brighter and a lot closer to your heart. And that is Jesus, the son of righteousness. When he captures your heart, friends, you're going to hold your career lightly and you're going to use it and bend it to benefit the poor and the marginalized because that is what Jesus Christ did for you when he bent his career to benefit us who were poor and marginalized and enemies of God to take us who were outside and to bring us in so that we could go and do likewise. It's a God who suffered, a God who died on a cross. Journalist Ellen Vaughn retells a story of how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia. It was September of 1999, and, and Pastor Tuiseng traveled to Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia. And throughout that isolated area, most of the villages had uh, you know, cast their lot with either Buddhism or some kind of syncretistic spiritualism. Uh, Christianity was almost unheard of. 
And yet, much to Singh's surprise, when he arrived in one small rural village, the people there warmly embraced him and embraced the message about Jesus. And when he asked the villagers about their openness to the Christian gospel, one elderly woman shuffled forward. She bowed down before us. She grabbed his hands and she said, we have been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story of the mysterious God who had hung on a cross. In the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist-led regime that took over Cambodia, the killing fields emptied the cities, destroyed everything, killed millions. When the soldiers finally descended on their village in 1979, right toward the end of the Khmer Rouge reign, uh, they immediately rounded up the villagers and they forced them to start digging their own graves. And after the villagers had finished digging their graves, they prepared themselves to die. And some were crying out to Buddha. Others were screaming to demon spirits or to their ancestors. And yet one woman in the village started to cry for help based on a childhood memory. It was a story her mother had told her about a God who had suffered, a God who has hung on a cross. And there was an eerie silence, you know, in the muggy jungle air. And slowly as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they were all crying out to this. Eventually everybody began crying out to this same God as she was crying out to to this God who hung on a cross. She thought, surely this God understands suffering. Surely this is the only God that understands what it is to die. This is the God I cry out to. And she's crying out and the other villagers start crying out to this God who had hung on a cross. This God who was acquainted with suffering. And as the quiet descended, they opened their eyes and they looked around and all of the soldiers had gone. And as the old woman finished telling the story, she told Pastor Sung that ever since that humid day 20 years ago, the villagers had been waiting, waiting for someone to come and share the rest of the story about a God who is willing to suffer for others, a God who had hung on a cross. Friends, this is Jesus, the God who bent his career path in a way that cost him greatly for your sake, so that from your place of security and strength in His grace and love, you might go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks because of your great and wonderful love, because of your compassion, and because of your steadfast care for us. Lord, we consecrate these elements on this table, this bread and this cup to you, that you, Lord, might display your grace in us and shape us as a people shaped by your gospel, shaped by your mercy, shaped by your love of justice, shaped by your care for the poor and the marginalized, even and specifically us. It's in Christ's name we give thanks. Amen.